Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to episode 13 of the PD Podcast, hosted by myself, Prane Budev. I continue to be very thankful to our audience and those who engage with us on social media platforms and hope you enjoyed our last episode with Dr. Jeff Neppel from St. Louis in the US. After much liberation, we've decided to make these episodes once a month, releasing on the first Sunday of each month, and I hope you continue to tune in to hear from leaders and luminaries of the field of pediatric orthopedics and also to enjoy Uh, bonus episodes such as this one where we explore workplace cultures, human factors, teamwork and performance optimization. As the UK sets into another month-long lockdown over the winter period, we know there has been a considerable amount of stress upon the healthcare community as explored by our podcast series, The Corona Cast, which you can continue to tune in on all uh, major podcast platforms. In this episode, I sat with Dr. Chris Turner, who is an emergency medicine physician, but also the co-founder and champion of the Civility Saves Lives campaign. This serves to be a collective voice to uh, highlight the importance of respect, professional courtesy and valuing each other, which is at this time more and more important as we undergo further stresses uh, to our working lives, our personal lives and the healthcare system as a whole. This episode was recorded prior to the coronavirus pandemic and no social distancing measures were broken. I hope you enjoy the interview. Let's get into it. So, uh, Chris, thank you very, very much for sitting down with me. Prane, thank you very much. Thank you thank you for coming all the way to Birmingham on this freezing cold night and now sitting out in the shed with me because the family are all in the house, so I really appreciate it. Well, I'm glad we had to, got to a bit to chat for a bit and yeah. uh, have a look at your book collection and talk about a few other things as well. So uh, it's been great to already talk to you. But can you tell me about uh, sort of your background in, in medicine and essentially what led you to exploring this avenue in uh, sort of human factors? Yeah, sure. Um so I'm an emergency medicine consultant and I was a governance lead for 10 years across um, three different departments that I worked in. And when I started off, when I started off looking at the problems and the datex would come in and I was raging angry about the datex because some people write a brilliant datex. Some people absolutely hit your heartstrings and you go out and you want you want blood you want someone to suffer for how they've made them feel and I firstly began to realize that that was really erosive for me um, and I, I started in this thing where I was looking for something positive in other people and I tried to balance up the one positive to the one negative now the evidence on this is that's never enough you actually need three to five positives to one negative and that's Lasada's work but that was where it kind of started off from and I, and I thought why are things going wrong and I would look at it and I always tend to look at it through the the lens of process and why don't people follow the process? And very gradually, over time, I realised that actually we're not following the process an awful lot of the time. The reason we don't follow the process, as it's written down, which is called work as imagined, the reason that we don't follow that is because it doesn't really work in the real world. And in the real world, we get things done by bending and flexing with each other, 
by understanding each other's needs and by doing what feels and seems like the right thing in the moment. And what happened to me is gradually I realised that bad things were happening to good people and there was a common thread that ran through this. And the common thread was that people weren't behaving well. People were displaying behaviours which undermined a culture of safety or of learning or of excellence. And that's what I got into. I was having a conversation with a friend of mine called Trevor Dale, who runs a company called A Trainability. And Trevor's a really good guy. He's a pilot who flew Concorde on one occasion, and he hates it. I say that's the most important thing about him, but in my head, it kind of is. Um, and Trev was telling me about the work of a woman called Christine Porath. And Christine Porath is one of the people who did the initial work on incivility and the impact of incivility on performance and the desire to be at work. And I picked up on that, thought, oh my, there's the missing link. That's the thing that's going on in healthcare. And from there, so gradually came up with Civility Saves Lives. And obviously there's... Um Incivility is not someone shouting at you in your face. It's it's you know more subtler things, isn't it? And I'm sure it can even traverse uh, communications via you know, letters and emails and yes, um, letter letters and emails. Um, oh, good grief, yes, uh, letters and emails. I mean, some of some of our communication is um, it doesn't come across the way that we. In- Tend it to what happens is if I send if I send you an email, Pranay, you're going to read that email, but you are going to read it in the mood that you're in at that moment in time. You're going to assign meaning which I may never have intended. The problem with incivility is it's all in the interpretation of whatever message you're giving to somebody else, and the issue is that if you talk to me and I feel that you're being rude to me. It has a direct, demonstrable, measurable impact on my personal performance. And the statistics that go with this are quite shocking. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there, there's lots of different pieces of work done on this, but um, sort of direct face-to-face um, unpleasantness, but soft unpleasantness, not screaming and shouting, results in a decrease in working memory and working memory is that bit of memory at the front of our head that's effectively where we create our great solutions to problems and we're constantly doing that in healthcare and it doesn't matter what job you have be you a nurse, a porter or a a consultant orthopod, we're constantly coming up with creative solutions the reduction in your bandwidth is about 61% on average when people are just mild to moderately rude to each other and that's probably because your bandwidth, which, you know, you've got three or four things you can deal with, compressing down to two things because the rest of that bandwidth is being used up with you trying to work out what the hell's going on. Are you about to hit me? This is this feels hostile. And, you know, all our primitive brain is kicking in to try and protect ourselves. And, and it's just, it's a tough thing. So, you know, that's the direct person-to-person stuff. But there's a whole bunch of other stuff. There's the stuff around the the bystanders and they have an average of a sort of 20% reduction in their cognitive ability when they're exposed to people who are being rude to each other. Um, And, you know, if you're in theatre and there's seven of you, 
uh, if one person's rude to another person, then that the person that they're rude to or who perceives it has that 61% reduction in their cognitive ability. But we have the equivalent of five other 20% reductions. That's losing a whole other person from the pool of brain power in theatre um, because people are having a fight with each other. There, there's more and more evidence that how we how we treat each other in healthcare matters to patients and in a direct demonstrable way around how much they feel that um, they can trust us. So most people, when they this is where it comes from, banking, but there are a lot of similarities between banking and medicine and as much as you need to trust your bank, you really want to trust your surgeon, you want to trust your doctor. Um, if you go into a bank and you see two members of staff being rude to each other, the percentage um, of people who are positive promoters of the bank goes from 80%, so 80% of people when they just walk in the door believe in their bank and trust their bank, on seeing one single negative interaction between staff, even if that is felt to be justified, the percentage drops by 75% from 80% to 20%. 20% of people then believe that you know this is a trustworthy institution. More and more evidence now that when our patients don't believe that we care and don't think that we are trustworthy, they have worse outcomes everything else being equal so it's it's just scary stuff and if you're if you're a leader of a team and you know we're both consultants and we lead teams if you're a leader of a team and you leave the people around you at less able to um to perform then the evidence around complex stuff in healthcare is that you get worse and worse and worse outcomes because basically we are all each other's safety nets and we rely on people telling us if we've missed something and sometimes if we're getting something wrong and if they're not going to tell us then we screw up and this is obviously as you said it almost leads to a blame culture uh, which is sort of quite prevalent Um, how can we approach this Um, obviously you know as a surgeon, I've I've operated, and there's been someone talking in the background where they shouldn't have been, or something, and it, and it's very difficult at that time to control it. So how do you then approach it after, uh, right. if you have been rude? Because we've all been rude, yeah, yeah. Uh, and and meaningfully or unmeaningfully, we've yeah. all maybe said something or given someone a look, and we I'm sure I belittled someone at some point. Afterwards, I had that gut wrenching feeling. Yeah. I felt sick even to my stomach, and there was this hostility. What should we do to uh, rectify this? Okay. So. If you know you've done it, that's brilliant. Because if you know you've done it, and we all do it, and I run trauma teams, and if someone comes in and starts having a conversation behind me, I'm, I, my hearing isn't brilliant. If I have too many people talking, I can't hear what's going on. And I will occasionally bark at people when I'm trying to focus on stuff. If you know that you've done it, and you know that you may have caused other people distress, firstly, you may still be right to have done it, okay? That And that's important because we need to recognise that. But the second bit is the people that we've done that to may not understand why we did it. Um, and we don't want them to feel bad. That's that's not 
on our agenda. There's no purpose in that. We just need them to be quiet so that we can concentrate on the thing that we need to concentrate on. So afterwards, going and talking to them and letting them know what was going on and saying, I'm sorry, I'm sorry if that if that felt rude to you. Um, uh, you know, that wasn't my intention. I just needed to be able to concentrate on this at this moment in time. And the ev- evidence on this is that if if we go back and, and we genuinely say that we're sorry, we didn't want somebody to feel that way, then they actually think more of us. It's not seen as weak. Weak as saying sorry is not weak. Saying saying the inability to say sorry is an absolute leadership Achilles heel because we will all get things wrong sometimes. And when we get things wrong and we go to somebody and say, sorry, I got that wrong, they come back the next time and they help us because they see the humility in that. I also feel on the balance of that, it's important to make people know when they've done a good job, almost positive reinforcement. Oh, yeah. I'm sure that plays just as important a role. Uh, absolutely. Now, there's all sorts of people do interesting work on this. The, the most pragmatic, useful stuff in the UK is the Learning from Excellence stuff. Adrian Plunkett, Emma Plunkett, um, their work is absolutely fantastic. And there's this thing called the Praise Project. And you, I think it's um, funded by the Health Foundation. And what what the guys did was they, they already had a system in place for looking at um, a system in place for, for looking at the bad prescriptions on intensive care. But what they added into that was a compliment slip or a compliment email when somebody did a perfect pres- prescription. Um, and what they found over four months is they took their rate of perfect prescriptions from 50% to 75%. And that that's just incredible. And that's just by the act of positively reinforcing. We, we gain new neuronal pathways more easily when we are complimented for acts and we are the, we then reinforce them and we get better and better and better and stuff. So complimenting people for the positive things, recognising them is a really good thing. Obviously, we're, we're both consultants now, but I've gone through medical school, junior doctor training, surgical training. I've worked in different countries around the world and not once have I been taught about this and the importance of this um, what do we need to, is there anything right now that is out there and should this not be introduced so much earlier on, even probably at medical school level? Because we haven't changed the way we've taught in years. You know, we're yeah. still giving didactic lectures to first year medical students. We're still taking them to the anatomy lab. But behind that, over the last 15 years, there's been a massive development in what we understand about how people learn and what's important for yeah. outcomes. Yeah, it's, it's, it's an interesting one. I, I struggle with this, particularly from the civility perspective. Um, I, I worry about telling medical students about this, showing them the evidence base, telling them how important it is that we treat each other really well and then releasing them into the real world of the frustrations and difficulties and compromises that we need to make as senior people within healthcare and 
actually sometimes the the loss of control that we sometimes have and when we treat each other less well than we would expect to and they might sit there going well that's absolutely terrible and the truth is it is but it is also real life I and mean, we're dealing with lives and people people feel that burden and I don't know if medical students coming out being told that everyone should be behaving in a certain way towards each other and then being exposed to us having to what to them might sound like a Barney and then think well all this stuff they told us about medical school is is fine but they're not doing it I would personally sooner spend my time speaking with execs consultants matrons talking to people about the kind of culture that we are trying to encourage in our individual departments and talking about what it means to be civil to each other and to be professional to each other. Um, you're still involved in some research as well, I believe, in, in this sort yeah. of area. And I know that you do a whole lot of other things, so we can sort of yeah. venture into that ground as well. Okay. Um, so, so we do some research in the civility stuff we we've just finished a systematic review about the impact of incivility on learning um for medical medical students and doctors and actually there's a real dearth of information out there there is a paper from 2010 it's schwab and wolf and that that paper showed something like a 30 percent reduction in learning ability for people when they're in a a negative environment and that's interesting uh, there is some evidence that says that we lay down different sorts of memories when we are in hostile environments we, what we tend to do is lay down emotional rather than logical memories and that that's the whole Maya Angelou of people Maya Angelou thing of people remembering not what you said and not what you did but how you made them feel and that seems to be particularly true when you know you have a negative interaction where you feel really awful you remember that and you do remember some of the data around it but if you want to if you want to really learn stuff you probably need to be in a calmer environment in order to do that um so that that we do that around the civility stuff and we do quite a lot of stuff looking at um what's the culture like what's a prevalent culture it, in your area or your, your organisation the stuff that I do is um, a wee bit different to that I, I'm very lucky I get to be part of something called the Phrenesis Project which is um, research that's done out of Birmingham, Warwick and Nottingham which looks at the development of wisdom in doctors and it's a social sciences project but it turns out that and I'm about I'm about to tell you what my understanding of this and this is this is a big project with you know eight hundred thousand pound grant it's gone for years and years and years and I'm about to say it in a couple of sentences so you know apologies for the extreme dumbing down here but basically wisdom is something that's situated the wise decision for an F two is not the wise decision for a registrar and it's not necessarily the wise decision for a consultant as we move through our careers. We are bound by different factors. When we are early in our careers, we really need to be following the guidelines unless there is a brilliant reason to not follow the guidelines. As we become more senior, 
we are hopefully more nuanced in the decisions that we make, that we co-create with our patients and with the other staff who are involved so that we try to get to the right decision for this person at this moment in time in their lives. And that reflects a, a, an idea called phronesis, P-H-R-O-N-E-S-I-S, which is an Aristotelian idea about how we make practically wise decisions given the circumstances. I know also you mentioned you're involved in a couple of the anti-bullying campaigns. I'm sure you're aware of uh, BOTA, which is the British Orthopaedic Training Association, had yeah. Hammer It Out. Yeah. And uh, ASSIT, which is the Association of Surgeons and Training, has Cut It Out. Um, yeah. And that's become, that, was, I think, was launched in 2017. Uh, what's your involvement and how do you feel? Because this is obviously incivility, but usually at training level. Yeah. So um, I'm part of the anti-bullying alliance, which the... Royal College of Surgeons of Edinburgh and uh, Royal College of Obs and Gynae, um have supported but has loads of other people involved. Now, I think this the, the bullying thing has been a real journey. Um, the, when you first get involved in this stuff the thing that drives people to get involved is they have a strong desire for this not to happen to anybody else they want this stopped and sometimes that can drift into the an area where they almost feel that they want people punished for their bullying behaviors which is utterly understandable but once you start to look at the motivators for people who have behaved in these ways you start once more to realise that you're dealing with human beings who often don't recognise that these behaviours are seen as bullying. They've almost always had them role modelled to them. And quite often they think that's what leadership looks like. And good leadership looks like that. And to, to go into that wanting blood from them is to kind of miss the point that they think they're being good professionals in that setting or they're working in an environment where nobody has ever called it out with them and therefore they think it's okay and it's acceptable and sometimes for me that the, the anti-bullying stuff is actually I have a, a more positivistic stance on it I think it's an opportunity for us to talk to people about the impact that their behaviour is having on the people around them and I genuinely don't know of um, senior doctors and nurses who would want to have, be having a very negative impact on the, the staff around them, particularly once they know that that results in poorer performance. And, you know, I grew up in a world, I went to Edinburgh Medical School in the 1980s, and um, there were behaviours that, that were tolerated there, as in all medical schools at that time, which you know, we're all about humiliating people and we've moved on, we've got we've got better but there are still people who are displaying behaviours that are distressing other people they simply don't know about it, some of them do but not many and if we can find ways to talk to them, if we can find ways to let them know about the impact that their behaviour is having on the people around them, the evidence is that they simply change and they revert to behaving in a different way. I think we've covered a huge amount of ground uh, in in yeah. this in this episode. But 
we all want to do what's best for our patients to get the best outcome and i think as you said a large amount of it is that we don't get training in this although there are now a few human factor training days that are starting to pop up around the country and certain trust yeah. level ones that i certainly encourage uh, people to attend um, but it's all about having insight into the effects we have when we communicate with people and how it can be completely detrimental to the outcomes of our relationships, our performance, our teamwork, and subsequently patient outcomes. Um, obviously, you have done a TED Talk, which is fantastic, and I recommend everyone uh, to watch it, and we'll put everything inside the show notes. Um, you can find out more at civilitysaveslives.com. Follow them on Twitter at, at civilitysaves and at orangedis. Yeah. And uh, before we end, I'd like to ask you, because we're sitting in your uh, wealth of books here, uh, <laughs> what are the best books that you would recommend to someone that would like to learn a bit more about the topic? Okay. Um, so if you want to learn a bit more about incivility, then Christine Porath's book, which I think is called Mastering Civility. Yeah. Um, um, but if I'm just sitting here to recommend a book... Um, I would recommend the absolutely best leadership book I have ever read, and I have read tens of them, and I think you'll probably confirm that by the amount of the amount of books that are kicking about on my shelves. And um, the absolute best leadership book I've ever read is called The Multiplier Effect. It's by a guy called Andy Cope with Mike Martin. Um, you look at it on the outside, and it looks like it's comics on serif, and you think, is this serious? And it is utter gold dust it is like those guys took all the other books and they distilled them into something that's manageable that you can read it's little it's funny it's an absolutely brilliant book um and we don't have time to read 20 30 books you know we're, we're busy becoming really bloody good clinicians so if we're going to read one that's one i'd read the multiplier effect by andy cope Fantastic. And for those who are uh, orthopaedic background in nature, the BOA does have a clinical leadership program um, that I, I've done. It's part of a fellowship encouraged for people who are fellows and early year consultants. It's absolutely fantastic. And I have to say they are starting to incorporate some of the civility saves lives teaching into their into their program. Um, Chris, thank you very, very much for taking oh, the time to speak to me. It's a pleasure. And uh, I look forward to meeting you again. Thanks for coming up to see me. Cheers, man.